everyone. Welcome to Noun at Talk, the podcast all about nouns. This is a show where we interview members of the DAO and project builders in the ecosystem. I'm your host, CDT, and today I'm chatting with Tyson, the CTO of Zora. With the launch of Nouns Builder, the Create Your Own DAO tool built by the Zora team, I wanted to get Tyson's insights on the project, as well as get to know him and his story. We walked through his path from architecture to software engineering and crypto, how Zora came to be, and even how you can get started learning Solidity. I'm excited for you to hear this episode, and be sure to check out the new YouTube channel for Now to Talk, where we're uploading full episodes and clips each week. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hey Tyson, how are you? Hello, good, thanks, how are you? I'm good. I think this is our first time really chatting, so I'm excited to get into it. There's a ton to talk about. Yeah, I feel like we've been like crossing paths a number of times without actually talking too much, so happy to do this. I know. Another reason why I love the podcast, because we can bring people together and learn more. Love to hear it. So as always, let's just kind of take it all the way back. As a dev, I'm always interested to kind of hear people's stories coming to programming in general. Can you kind of take me back to pre-crypto days, pre-software engineering, your path coming into tech? Yeah, for sure. I think I uh, had a pretty late start into tech compared to a lot of people, especially in crypto, who are starting already in high school. I think I graduated high school with this idea of wanting to be an architect and just do architecture as much as I possibly could. Just like the idea of public spaces or just spaces in general and how they can affect what you're feeling or what you think about was super, super powerful to me. So I had this idea of going into college to study architecture and pretty quickly realized that that's a long, long career path of a lot of internships and struggling and probably not actually doing anything meaningful until you're past 40. But while I was doing that, while I was studying architecture, I took this creative coding class just to kind of get a better idea of what the computer side of architecture kind of looked like. And I I fell in love with that pretty quickly. I found it was like very, very similar to architecture, but much less constrained, no physical constraints required to kind of build whatever you wanted. So I stopped doing architecture entirely and just jumped straight into computer science with this idea of not sure what I wanted to do, but something in this creative coding type atmosphere. It was super, super drawing to me. Then while I was doing that, I just started working at a small startup. We were doing basically healthcare communications tech, nothing particularly exciting, but it was great just to kind of get my hands busy in software engineering and traditional engineering work. But while I was doing that, a good friend introduced me to this concept of Ethereum. This was late 2016, early 2017, I think. And this idea that there's this concept of a world computer where you can kind of see what's happening around the world and everyone's touching the exact same database. And the secondary effects that can start to arise from that and the social consensus and the game theory that starts to play when everyone's using the same resources. And I got beyond obsessed at that point. I remember I like basically quit my job a month after discovering it, was going all in on this idea of crypto. And at the time, the only company I had heard of was Coinbase that was doing anything in crypto. So I moved from Canada, dropped out of school, quit my job and just joined Coinbase as quick as I could. And then from there, that whole crypto journey thing started. Wow. Okay. So, so that's a lot. Let's take it back even maybe farther right before crypto. I noticed that while you were in school, you ended up doing some deep learning, machine learning course. Once upon a time, is that maybe a field you were thinking of heading down into? I think it was. I think there was just something really interesting about the idea of a black box, where effectively a lot of these AI models were these very, very complicated decision trees, effectively. And this concept of just creating these black boxes and not really knowing what the output was 
was super, super mesmerizing to me. And I think we see it now with GPT-3 and stable diffusion and all these new AI models coming out this year. Just the magic of putting some input into a black box and seeing what comes out the other end was just very interesting to me. I don't know if I had the math or engineering brain to really do ML or AI as an actual career, but it was super, super interesting to me at the time and still is. I also find myself aligning with your story of having this dream, right? You wanted to be an architect. My story was a doctor. I was just interested in helping people, yada, yada. And until I realized maybe how long it would take. And I know me personally, I don't know if you resonate with this at all. I just, I just like doing stuff really quickly. I love what computer engineering has afforded me to just kind of like by myself, get stuff done, ship stuff. Something like you were saying, a career that couldn't start till like I was in my late 30s or something, like just didn't appeal to me. And the autonomy that software engineering gave me was just so much more up my alley. Like I think I would have enjoyed that other career. Like maybe you would have enjoyed getting into architecture, but like not at the cost of the time involved, if that makes sense. Do you resonate with that at all? For sure. Yeah. I think the like the feedback loop of seeing your work actually have an immediate impact in computer science and just software in general is super, super underrated compared to the hours and years sometimes of work that you put into these larger projects that aren't in the software world. I spoiled myself a little bit in college by just seeing how quick that iteration loop is. I noticed on your website, you have this really beautiful piece of generative art that shows up. Is that something you've toyed around with a lot? And I'm wondering if you could kind of explain what that is for those who haven't seen it yet. I used to, I still do, but I used to especially fool around with just concepts of generative art. There's this really, really good book by someone named Carl Ostrito. It's called Computational Drawing, I believe. It just teaches the theories of representation, basically, on computer environments. And I remember that there was an algorithm that I read in there that was super interesting of just how you can kind of mimic the path of birds flocking together. So if you like look up at a, a group of birds in the sky, kind of congregating and disassembling and coming back together again, you can kind of start to mimic that with some algorithms. And I made this program that just kind of draws that path of these different colored, I think, blue, red, and black lines that just kind of all come together and go apart, kind of like a flock of birds. And I just like the way it looked, basically. I, I used to fool around with that all the time. No way. That's what that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The bird fly pattern? That's insane. I mean, it's an attempt at that. I don't know if it's the accurate representation, but that's kind of where it ended up. And I just kind of liked the way that felt. So I just left it as is. Yeah, because I remember in doing some research, I found a tweet where you talked about it. And if you go to it, it's a bit rigid, right? The way that the, the path the algorithm takes. But you ended up posting a version that was like denoised, I believe. And it was way smoother and like very, very beautiful, actually. It like had maybe all the reds taken out or maybe the greens or something. And it's mm -hmm. just a much smoother path. That, to me, does line up with like the flight path, like you were saying. Like, I can believe that a bit more. But yeah, I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah, it's pretty fun when you just start with those like base algorithms and just start tweaking little pieces one at a time until you, you eventually like disassociate it from the original idea entirely. But you get these really cool outcomes just by fooling around and tweaking with these little parameters. Have you been able to mess around with that stuff at all? Like who has time anymore, but side projects or fun art projects at all? I think the closest I came was a few weeks ago, I, I did this project I called Faucets. It's basically streaming payments, but I, I got to have some time to fool around with a bit of generative art when it comes to like NFTs on chain. That was the closest I've been in a while. I really would like to get the time to go back to do some generative art stuff, but it's definitely hard to like convince myself that it's worthwhile right now. Um, there's just been so much stuff going on with Zora land, but yeah. it is definitely well worth sticking the time into. Totally. So you mentioned a book and as well on your site, the biggest section on it is your reading list. I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe what reading does for you personally. You seem like a very avid reader. Yeah, it's funny you say I'm an avid reader. I feel like I'm a very average reader. 
I started publishing that book list because an old mentor of mine at Coinbase was publishing his, and I was realizing I was getting most of my reading recommendations by just creeping through his book list. So I think I just copied that directly and started publishing my own reading list of the things I've been going through. But I think in general, like for fiction and nonfiction, like fiction, I find that just like having this concept of world building and these wild abstract concepts that are a little bit separate from reality is just a good escape, especially when we're dealing with intense real world problems all day. And then for the nonfiction books, it's funny how often history repeats itself. So being able to spot these parallels in some historical things and with what's happening today is just very, very fun. Yeah, I notice the most frequent author on the list is Murakami. It feels like you've read a ton of his books. Yeah, I think Murakami is one of my favorite authors just for the ability that he has to like construct these very incredible worlds with extremely simple sentences. It's like something a five-year-old could read. Like, no offense to Murakami, but the portrait he paints is just incredible with it. I feel like I'm able to turn my brain off and watch TV while I'm reading that book. The images he paints in those books are just very, very vivid for me. Yeah, I'm a runner, and so I read the what I talk about when I talk about running, the memoir. But I haven't read any others, and I really want to, because obviously comes very highly recommended from everyone. Yeah, almost all of his books are incredible. I think this one, especially the trilogy of the rat, it's called, it starts or ends with a book called The Wild Sheep Chase, which is probably one of the best books I've ever read. Yeah, I think my problem is personally, I maybe over-optimize for work and for making progress in every aspect. So even like my rest can look a lot like work. Mm -hmm. And so I don't read for like escapism. I wish I did, but I read for learning, enhancing, progress, etc. What about you? I think I'm the same. I find that I use it like escapism as a bit of a word, especially when it comes to the fiction. But the reality of reading books, especially when you're busy struggling with a hard real life work problem, the ability to like switch your brain into a reading mode and just intake new information, I think is extremely powerful because no matter what, your subconscious is still thinking about the original problem you're trying to solve. And if you allow your main conscious thread to start focusing on something else, you start to pick up patterns in other people's work that might actually relate back to the work you're trying to solve. An example of that is this book that I was reading recently called 722 Miles. It's about the history of the New York subway and how the, that kind of came to be. And there was this very funny anecdote in there where the very first subway was this entrepreneur who like realized he couldn't actually convince the New York City Council to build the subway just because of how heavily lobbied that council was by horse carriages. And I thought it was really funny because that's something that's very similar with crypto today is just the amount of lobbying against crypto that happens that makes it very difficult. And the way this entrepreneur was able to make the subways happen was he convinced them that it was just going to be a mail and package delivery service underground. And what he ended up doing was getting a little bit of funding from the city and ended up making it way bigger than he needed to deliver packages and letters. And instead, he started delivering people. And only after all of these people were convinced that this underground transport system was better than carriages, was he able to convince the council to let a subway actually exist. So by just really heavily focusing on the public opinion instead of the bureaucracy and trying to like fight through all of this lobbyism, he just focused on the public and was able to make the New York subways popular amongst everyone. It's just funny to like start to pick up the parallels of what's happened in the past to what's happening today. And I think that's really important when you take in new information from things like reading and stuff. Yeah. Can you maybe say more about what's happening today? I'll relate to like the latest one being the Uber model, we call it. Uber was very, very successful because it blitzed across America all at once and just offered a very, very good public service for everyone. And it got very successful and got successful before a lot of the pre-existing entities had time to react. So before taxi lobbyists could really react to understand what was happening, Uber was already popular among everyone else. And it feels like that's very close with certain crypto applications as well, where some 
application will start to take the mainstream by storm and be incredibly popular and immediately incredibly useful for people to the point where the existing bank lobbyists, for example, might not actually have time to react to what's happening and just have to adopt it and accept that as the new way of things. I think we're starting to see it with some very useful applications like USDC, for example, which is an incredible upgrade to the dollar, which still cements the value of the US dollar, but makes it way more useful for everyone else to use. I think as more and more people start to understand the power of that, it's going to almost be forced to be adopted around the world in a way that might have been harder if people were just trying to convince USDC to be adopted without giving it to people to play with first. Yeah. How do you think about with these sorts of ideas when it comes to innovation, like what people think they need and maybe looking towards what they're not thinking about, right? Because no one asked for the subway or no one knew it until it was presented to them. It's funny because I think people might have recognized there was a problem without thinking of the solution itself. So for the subways example, there were a number of complaints about the noise, the smell, the crowdedness, the bumpiness of horse carriages to get around. So all it took was one person to understand that maybe there's a better way and to start thinking about how you could make a better transportation system for that to immediately get popular. Because even though the public might not have been thinking about the solution, they were definitely thinking about the problem. And we have that pattern pop up all over the world today where things that are kind of just treated as annoyances, but have been kind of accepted as the way things are meant to be or the way things just are. All that really takes is one novel enough solution to start to make people think that maybe there is a new way to do this. And as soon as that solution is presented, I think a lot of people jump onto it pretty quickly. Yeah, it reminds me of that. People would have asked for a faster horse before they found out what a car was or whatever. Exactly, exactly. So let's take it back to you and kind of like your learning journey. At what point does Solidity and smart contracts come into your life? You said you started to get Ethereum pilled. And so at what point does your programming talent shift to, okay, well, I need to dive in in this way? Yeah, I think it was pretty quick, actually. I remember some friends and I were in this AI machine learning club at our university, and we called it the AI and machine learning club. Actually, I think specifically we called it the software development and machine learning club, specifically so we'd have this umbrella term to be able to do kind of whatever we wanted under that. So we focused originally with AI and machine learning, which is where I think we talked about earlier, I'm just building random models. But eventually all of us got very excited by crypto and we just started talking about what crypto could be in that club. And I remember I started to take this course called Crypto Zombies Online, which just taught me like the basics of Solidity just to get an idea for it. And then from there, once I had got a handle on it, I remember I just started messaging every single Coinbase employee on Twitter if I could get a job. And eventually one of them responded and I was able to get in. But I just started teaching myself online, which is kind of think how everyone teaches themselves any sort of programming at this point. Yeah, I think about this a lot when it comes to learning new things. I'm a self-taught developer. So with that comes trying a bunch of stuff that doesn't work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, you're pro at Solidity at this point, And I'm sure people ask you all the time, you know, maybe at your company or people wanting to learn. But what's Tyson's path to learning Solidity? Like if you were to sit down one-on-one -on -one with someone, what's your recommendation? Obviously, it depends if whether or not this person has developed software before. Yes. Let's assume they're a software engineer, but smart contracts, Solidity, new to crypto, new to all of that. So as I kind of mentioned earlier, the idea of Ethereum or really blockchains just being a public database, something that I started to do to get a better idea of what I could be building on Ethereum was by taking a lot of previous web apps that I had built through college or just through random experiences and tried to entirely replace the backend with smart contracts. So it could be anything as simple as a to-do app, which I think almost everyone has built at some point in their life, to a messenger app, really anything that would require a backend on a regular software project, and just try to replace that with a smart contract. 
And I think you find that like for most things, it, it actually replaces almost one-to-one. Instead of building a backend system, you're just building a state machine that reacts to some user input. And I think that actually starts to really, really help people understand what a smart contract can and cannot do and where you can one-to-one translate your backend experience and where you might need to shift your thinking a little bit. Interesting. Yeah, I like that answer because so often there are these like maybe cookie cutter answers. Like I know you mentioned crypto zombies. I've done it as well. And I thought it was useful, but it by no means is like enough in its totality. So I always like to get like someone's real suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. And just like taking like a regular JavaScript tutorial, you can take the tutorial and feel like you know a little bit. But as soon as you try to build something yourself, you realize there's all sorts of new walls of learning that you have to climb over. So uh, I would still say for people to probably start with crypto zombies and then try to switch an old project into a smart contract and see how far you get. And I think you start to run into the walls that you have to learn through again. Yeah, just a couple more questions from like the past and this kind of stuff. It's funny you mentioned the what was it, the software development and artificial intelligence group or club? Mm-hmm. Yeah, software development and machine learning. That's awesome. You guys <laughs> should have made t-shirts for that. <laughs> I did some digging and I saw in your GitHub that you had a TV script generation repo. Did that get birthed out of that group? And what was that all about? You know what? I think that might have. I don't remember if that came from a group or... It just sounded interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a silly little example, I think. They used these things called LSTMs. I don't don't even remember what that acronym stands for anymore. It was so long ago. But I remember it was just a simple thing to produce TV episodes of The Simpsons. Just that cartoon. And the only reason I chose The Simpsons was because it was very easy for me to find previous transcripts of The Simpsons episodes. So it was easy to get that training data. But yeah, I remember I had this thing. It would just produce little Simpsons quotes or Simpsons episodes. And to be honest, it sucked. It was probably one of the worst projects I'd made, especially if you compare it to the things like GPT-3 and stuff today, the models that are just so, so much better. But it was really fun just to kind of learn how you might start to build a model like that. Definitely one of my worst projects as far as quality of output, though. I remember just not being happy with the way that one turned out. Yeah, but I love that it's all public. I love that we can go back and look at it and you can see the progress, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like looking at old high school photos of yourself. You remember that you really went through that. <laughs> like, that was an entirely different time. It's your software engineering yearbook is your GitHub history. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so let's move on to another project. Talk to me about Treasury DAO and that project you worked on with Jacob and Breck at Coinbase. Yeah, that was a really fun one. I think that's kind of where I had first started to really work with Jacob in an actual work capacity, other than just knowing them through the halls at Coinbase. I guess just for a bit of pre-context, Coinbase had or maybe still has these little hackathons where people can just work on something unrelated to their regular work for a little bit, usually a week or so. And I had been quite obsessed with DAOs and the concept of DAOs to the point where I was, I remember advocating for like individual teams within Coinbase just to be their own DAOs because I thought they would be able to operate a little bit smoother. But I had this concept that I worked on with Jacob and Breck. And the general idea was we wanted a UI for DAOs to be able to use that would let them just interact with any contract. So we have it kind of on Etherscan now where you can point to an address and you can inspect the contract and there's these options to read and write from the contract. We basically just made a UI that would allow a DAO to compose those methods. So you could say like, I want to transfer some USDC to this address, or I want to loan from Compound. 
and you would just enter the address of the contract. It would fetch the contract information and supply you all of these functions and forms to fill out, basically to start compiling your transaction for the DAO. And that was a really fun one. I remember we made it Windows 95 themed. We just messed around with it as much as we could. It was really fun. And I think we won nothing out of that. I forget what won that year, but there were some really good projects. Coinbase had a lot of good hackathon projects back then, but it was super fun to build. Was it just a general build anything hackathon? Yeah, I think there was usually a theme. I don't remember what that year's theme was, but usually it's, you know, something in crypto. We always like joke that Coinbase was like the MBA of crypto, where like you come to really learn and build yourself into the crypto ecosystem and then move on to do other things. And those hackathons definitely were a big part of that, just to really get your hands on crypto, even if your day to day isn't directly in the crypto world. Yeah, you said that you started DMing everyone from Coinbase. Back then, again, I'm still pretty new to crypto in general compared to everyone else. But back then, was it just the understood, the only place to work? Or like, for you, why did it have to be Coinbase? I think back then it was really the only one that I had known of as a crypto company. There were a few other that were crypto exchanges as well, but Coinbase felt like the most it was and still is probably the most trusted crypto exchange. And I remember at the time, as I started to talk with people from there, back then, like 2016 was before that large Ethereum boom. There had been you know, a number of Bitcoin booms before then. But even back then, the people who worked at Coinbase, I think you could safely call them crazy because believing in crypto that long ago was definitely still a fringe thing and not something that you would expect from normal people. And the types of people that were able to work at Coinbase back then and believe in that shared mission was just incredible. And I think it was very easy to get obsessed even more with crypto after talking with those people just because of how much they believed in the potential of what crypto could be. So as I started talking to those people, I just found myself more and more enthralled with surrounding myself with them. So I think that's when I really, really realized I wanted to be involved at Coinbase in whatever way I could. Yeah. So talk to me about your growth personally throughout your time at Coinbase, maybe up to leaving it, right? How long were you at Coinbase total? I think total about three years. Okay. It was a bit of a, a rocky journey though. So I, maybe I'll start from the, the beginning there. So I, obviously I had one of those Twitter DMs was finally answered as far as like getting me into the interview loop there. Actually, like as soon as I got into those interview loops and felt like they were going well, I had already dropped out of school and was convinced that I was just going to move down to San Francisco and start working at Coinbase. But through that process, I actually found out that I need a university degree to work in the USA as a non-citizen, which is a no-brainer now, but my excitement back then, I think I was just blinded to that fact. So I actually switched out of those interview loops and just accepted a job as an intern at Coinbase at the time because I, I needed some way to get down there and surround myself in crypto but I realized I wasn't actually able to work as a full-time employee. So I joined as an intern for this group called Coinbase Commerce. And Coinbase Commerce was this tiny little offshoot team basically building merchant solutions for crypto. And that team was just incredible. <laughs> I think it was one of the big reasons that I continued to fall in love with crypto as a concept and as a solution for a lot of problems. So I, I had interned there for about four months and accepted a, a return offer to come back as a full-time engineer after that. Obviously, needing to go finish my schooling in order to get a degree and legally be able to work in the USA. So in the meantime, I had accepted a contracting offer to work, I think, 20 hours a week after my internship until I finished my degree. And being the <laughs> someone who did not respect my sleep very much, I remember I took the 20-hour contracting offer and took seven courses a semester at my university just to finish the degree as fast as I possibly could, which was probably a mistake. I think I barely graduated with about 55% as my average across the courses I took in that last year. 
But I did manage to get it done while continuing to contract at Coinbase and was able to come back as a full-time engineer after that, where I continued to work on the same team. And I remember watching Coinbase go from about 200 when I started as an intern to over 1,000 by the time I was leaving. And that change was crazy to see. <laughs> I would say that seven courses in the internship is definitely a mistake, sleep and health-wise. But I also relate to that a lot. And you got through it. You did it. I did, yeah. And no one has asked for my transcript since. So <laughs> I, think, I think it was a safe bet to make. <laughs> So do you have any earliest memories of meeting some of these more formative people in your life as it is now in the crypto space, like Jacob or any of the other founders of Zora? Yeah, I remember meeting both Jacob and Dee at different points while I was at Coinbase. Jacob, I remember meeting first as originally just a person from Slack. Like I actually had never, I didn't even know what he looked like. He was half anon as well, where he would never show his face on any photos online. And he would just dump Google Docs into random teams' channels of ideas for them, things that they should be doing on their roadmap. <laughs> I think he was effectively designing every team's roadmap while not actually being on any of those teams. And it was just incredible. I remember going through and just reading some of the Google Docs he had authored within Coinbase. And all of them were just these absolute gigabrain ideas of where Coinbase should be heading in different product dimensions. So I knew him as like the person dumping Google Docs into channels. D, I met through Coinbase at one of the many Coinbase happy hours, Coinbase had like a very good after work culture of everyone would have dinner together and sit in this big cafeteria. And I remember Dee coming up and talking about all of these ideas for crypto and commerce, especially to really focus on whether it be the NBA or just music in general and just how crypto and culture really need to make a formative effort together to drive crypto adoption. One of the big sticking points that Dee was telling me back then was just crypto adoption is more likely to be downstream from culture than upstream. We can do everything we want to build these solutions, but unless it's embedded in culture, it's unlikely to actually be adopted by the public. And Dee was like, really helped drive my thinking in that direction. So meeting both of them just at random events throughout Coinbase was two big moments for me. But I had never actually worked directly with them until we had decided to go do Zora. That was a couple of years after the fact. Yeah, Jacob with the, I don't know how to describe it other than guerrilla ideation is one of the funniest things to me. Honestly, that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> Gorilla ideation is pretty correct. Also, it checks out. From what I know about him, this doesn't surprise me. Yeah, major ideas guy from Jacob. But not just <laughs> ideas, like ideas plus execution of how they would work. It's a, a rare combo to have, but it's awesome to hear from him. Yeah, senior level idea guy. Exactly. Thank you, John. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shout out, John. I heard in a previous podcast with you that there was this time where you and Jacob went out to coffee and he kind of laid out maybe a master plan or just this notion doc and was kind of fleshing out some ideas of the future and maybe what Zora could and would be. Is that right? Can you kind of flesh out that story a bit more? That was a really funny one for me because I was looking at leaving Coinbase to go do my own company. I was actually deciding between doing my own company or a different company with a friend. And I started seeing Jacob tweet these funny emoji sequences on Twitter. And it was just moon, sun, moon over and over. And at that point, I had this feeling that Jacob was about to go do his own thing as well. So I asked him out for a coffee just to get a better idea of what he was looking at doing. And we went out for coffee. He shared this Notion doc with me. And at that time, there was a fire drill that happened at our office. And all of the Coinbase employees came outside, started walking down the street, and a bunch of them walked past us. And one of them even came inside and I remember him asking, be like, oh, so when are you guys co-founding a company together? And that person is actually now working in the Nouns ecosystem, who I'm not going to dox right now, but it's funny seeing them in that circle now as well. But yeah, we went out for this coffee. He shared this Notion doc. And I think 
the next day or within that week, I had given my two-week notice to go work with Jacob on this idea. Okay. <laughs> a lot of things. Let's take a step back. First of all, I didn't know you were thinking of starting a company. Where was maybe your head at right before that? Filled with possibilities. You've been in the crypto ecosystem now several years and you want to strike it out alone. What was that idea? What was pushing you towards that? Yeah, I think the main push for me was recognizing and understanding how far Coinbase had grown. And that's not to say a bad thing. I think it was very intentional and very positive that Coinbase was able to grow as much as it did and was as mature as it was. But that obviously came at the loss of a lot of things like velocity and experimentation. I think my team originally at Coinbase was one of the most experimental. And it still is today. It's very, very exciting. But it started to slow down just naturally with the number of people that were getting involved in Coinbase. And I remember just one product meeting getting frustrated and being like, I feel like I could do this by myself, which is probably naive and incorrect, but I was excited and kind of fired up and just ready to go do my own thing. And the idea was to do uh, effectively tickets as NFTs for real life concerts. It was half seated by D, funnily enough, from a conversation we'd had a while back about Ticketmaster and how Ticketmaster operated. But the general idea was there is a limited supply of seats in every venue and there's a weird and shady secondary market for those tickets. And it felt like it would be natural to kind of make an open market for tickets at these different venues. And I remember I was talking with Maxim, who was my old manager at the time, about this idea and getting really fired up on what was possible with it. But at the same time, really not knowing how a business works and not knowing how to actually start that, especially as someone who's not an immigrant or someone who is not a citizen of the U.S. and trying to figure out what that process would look like. And around then, I just met Jacob and loved his idea, honestly, much more. And I, uh, yeah, I wanted to jump on that one instead. I was going to say, now it feels like there's three options. You stay at Coinbase, which, again, I totally relate to the feeling of the need for speed <laughs> and mm -hmm. autonomy. And this is now getting slower, even though it's successful. Your own thing. And then it just boils down to, Jacob, the idea was maybe more compelling. Yeah, I think Jacob has this incredible way of describing very complex ideas and very complex futures into the most simple form of writing possible. Similar to, I think, like what I respected about Murakami and his books from earlier. Jacob has that with product ideas and with ideas about what the future could bring with different forms of tech. And he spoke to something that was sitting in the back of my brain for a while about the concept of DAOs and how DAOs could interoperate with one another. And that really, really spoke to me. So I got very excited and kind of trusted the process and just jumped in with that. I have to ask, do we still have the Notion doc somewhere? Does it exist? Do you know? I actually found it a couple of weeks ago. No way. It was funny because I was rereading it and we've almost come entirely full circle back to the original Notion idea. That Notion doc that he'd written, we didn't start with the idea. We kind of started in a different direction. And now I think we're finally coming back to the original idea of Zora with things like the Nouns Builder project that we're working on. Has that ever seen the light of day? I think one day that might get shared publicly, but that would be on Jacob. I don't think it has. I think a few people within Zora have seen it at this point, but I don't think it's ever been shared publicly yet. Maybe one day. Yeah, it feels important. It feels like a historical artifact. It probably is. <laughs> <laughs> so now let's move on. Now we're here at Zora today, right? For those who don't know the wide breadth of everything, and even would be helpful for me included, I think most people may think of Zora as just a marketplace, but you guys do a ton of stuff. So what's maybe the elevator pitch on maybe the main things that Zora does? Give me the Zora 101. I guess the two-sentence explanation of Zora is Zora is a group of tools or a tool shed almost of things for creators or builders to collectively create or collectively collaborate on ideas. 
So I think like one of the main verbs we started to use internally is just the power of imagination and bringing imagination on chain. So anything that a creator might have, whether it be an idea for a piece of art or a brand or a group of friends that they want to bring together, we want to make sure that we provide the tooling for them to do that on chain. And we think it's very important that that goes on chain because that provides provenance and a very clear and direct ownership over their work. Yeah, imagination on chain is really good. I don't think I'd heard that before. <laughs> I'm going to be told in like two hours after this call that I was not allowed to say that. But yes, I, I think it's a super, super powerful slogan. <laughs> You're leaking the rebrand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I also love the tool shed. Can you run us through the tools in said tool shed that Zora has to offer? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it originally started with just our NFT protocol, which was this idea of embedding a market directly into every NFT so they wouldn't have to rely on OpenSea or a wearable of the world. NFTs could just exist as their own standalone markets. So it would be an artwork and a market underneath that artwork. That was the original tool that we had built. Then we moved on to a thing called the auction house, which was just a way for any NFT to be auctioned off. That was super powerful for us. Then we had just moved into a full-on marketplace and embraced the fact that we were buying and selling NFTs or helping people buy and sell their own NFTs. From there, we moved on to the Creator Toolkit, which is one of our most used tools to date, which just allows anyone to create their own NFT contract. And they can put any of their own artwork, whether it be a song or a poster or a slide deck or whatever they want, and create an NFT contract off of it. The other large tool that's slowly but surely coming out within the next couple of weeks is the Nouns Builder, which is an extension onto the idea of creating your own NFT contract. But instead of an NFT contract, it is a full NFT-powered DAO in the style of Nouns. I think we can go into more detail on that later. But on the side, we also have infinite dev tools where we have a API, we have a SDK, we have React hooks, we have web components, we have all sorts of things that people would need to just build on top of Zora. And that's why I kind of started to refer to it as a tool shed internally, just because we have an assortment of things to help people build whatever they want to build. Yeah, I love that. I've said this a lot, but I've been so busy since joining the, the whirlwind that is crypto that I'm not a super active user of a lot of things. Like I don't have the full context of everything that's just out there because I just feel like I'm always just coding, right? And I ended up having a chat with a guy on your team, Max, and he gave me a pretty good Zorro 101 as well. And it was really helpful because... I think it's easy for me or others, right, to just be like, oh, Zora's a marketplace. But like, he really helped me understand the tool shed, as it were. And again, I just, I love that analogy. I just feel like you're doing everything. I think all of it's great. I think it's a little tricky to maybe wrap that up in a nice basket of understanding sometimes because it feels like it's just really wide, the breadth of everything you guys are doing and touching. Yeah, and I think that's, in a way, that's almost intentional or just the nature of what we've been building. We're effectively building tools, and it's very hard for us to wrap up a set of tools into one neat toolbox because the use case for all these tools is so far widespread that like, we would rather see Zora pop up on a million different websites than pop up on just Zora.co as the place you go to to use our tools. You can kind of imagine, like, you know Gore-Tex, the jacket tech that people use for weatherproofing? Yeah, of course. You could almost imagine like some of Zora's tools being more like Gore-Tex. It's used across a million different surfaces in a million different brands or platforms or products. And it's just a tool underneath the hood. It doesn't really have one single place to go to be used. It's kind of meant to be ubiquitous around all of crypto. That's exactly the word I was going to use is ubiquitous because no one goes and buys something on Gore-Tex.com or they look for a Gore-Tex X, right? Things just have Gore-Tex in it. It just is everywhere. Exactly. I think that's one of the core ideas with a lot of the tooling we've built is we want it to be used on every surface area everywhere. And that's why most of our products are entirely fee-less. We just want 
that tech to be used because we know that it's very valuable and very helpful for creators and builders. Yeah. Could you maybe paint me a bigger picture of Zora and its future? Like maybe what are people not seeing or maybe fully getting from your point of view? What's the bigger picture people should see here? I think the simplest bigger picture is we want to build tools for creators and builders to bring their imaginations to real life. Like I mentioned before, if a creator wants to release an artwork or drop an NFT or create a brand, we want to have the tools available for them to be able to do that. It's funny the amount of assumptions of Zora being the NFT marketplace, which I think speaks to some of the success we had with our marketplace early on. But really, that marketplace was more of a spotlight of all of the tools that we had been building underneath the hood rather than the be-all, end-all product. It was much more of a collection of the components we were releasing than one single thing. I wanted to talk about your thoughts on Zora and the brand because I don't even think we <laughs> actually touched on it or gave you proper intro, but you are the CTO of Zora, for those who don't know. And so you're up there in leadership and you are helping run this company with tons of employees, etc. And something I've always found, again, just from a relatively new user of crypto and new to a lot of things, taking it all in, etc. I've always been really impressed by the brand of Zora for a couple reasons, not just like maybe the visuals and the execution. And I'm not just saying this because you're here. Like I've mentioned this kind of thing before. Zora the brand has like a lot of personality and I find it interesting just from what I've seen about like the employees and what I've gathered from the culture at large. And so I'm wondering how you think about the brand and how you as a leader, I mean, specifically the CTO, because the other thing that's really interesting to me is that, you know, I follow a bunch of Zora employees and feel like Zora employees are very proud of Zora and they rep Zora <laughs> like a lot. It's just very obvious that they're Zora employees. And I don't know that I see that in, you know, maybe other companies. Like, yes, I understand it's a job, et cetera. But like Zora employees stand out in their love for the brand. So I'm curious how you think about that, the brand you guys are curating at a top level and maybe what you do specifically, maybe with your own team. First of all, I guess I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, that's quite reassuring to hear from an outside perspective, at least. It feels like we have a strong culture internally, but to hear that that kind of is resonant on the outside in is also very nice to hear. It's funny because the original brand for Zora, we built that entirely in public. Early on in Zora, we just linked to a Twitch stream and a Figma link and just let people mess around with basically a mood board of what Zora should be from a brand perspective. Taking that from early on, just this concept of building in public and building with everyone has really resonated. I also think internally and externally, we've been pretty open to acknowledge just kind of how fucked up the current industry is. Sorry if I wasn't allowed to swear here. Um, you are allowed to swear. Cool. And yeah, we've been pretty open about just how fucked up it is to be an artist or a builder right now trying to get paid from streams or to raise around from a group of VCs. It's a weird and kind of messed up system. And the two options are basically to be like nihilistic about the whole thing and to be like, yeah, that's how it is. That kind of sucks. Or to be like wildly and maybe stupidly optimistic about what could change in that world. And we've kind of taken the stupidly optimistic approach and just be like, well, yeah, it's fucked up. Here's what we can do to change it. And I think that's resonated with a lot of people and attracted some of the best people that we have working for us. Just the possibilities of what can be done, what can be fixed that a lot of people just accept and take for granted. Yeah. What can you say about maybe the Zora dev team specifically? I think they are probably the smartest people that I've ever worked with. It's cool because like all of the Zora engineers all come from like extremely different backgrounds. So we have this wild thought diversity of people bringing solutions from whether they had a contracting background or a traditional Web2 background or have never coded in their life and just got into crypto and just learned everything kind of background. 
So we have this huge thought diversity and also these huge tensions in the room when it comes to planning how and what we should be doing. But that diversity leads to this huge exposure to serendipity of people coming together with these wild ideas that just gel really nicely. I can happily say that I am probably one of the dumbest people on the dev team at this point, which is great. So what's it like as a manager, director, leader, etc.? What's it like being open to all those voices, but yet people still look to you for direction, right? At a very top level for overall vision. How do you deal with that kind of push and pull of being open to different opinions, but also realizing that there's got to be some kind of rudder steering the team? I think a lot of it comes to team building, where it's the people that have been hired into Zora, the people that work on Zora full time, they've been hired because I and we as Zora's leadership group believe and accept that what they're thinking is usually the right way of thinking about things. So in general, I think a lot of people, when they come to a, a Zora meeting with an idea for a project, they're usually right, or their intuition is usually right, that it is something that's valuable and important to build. Really, a, a lot of our job just comes down to like the prioritization aspect and whether or not it's the thing that we immediately work on. And if it is something that we work on, what kind of resources do we put towards it? But for the most part, the job lately is a lot more about hiring the right people and making sure the right people are in the right spots than pulling people into different directions. Everyone seems to intuitively understand where we're trying to build towards internally at Zora, at least. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what's it been like as a dev eventually now becoming manager? But you said before Zora, you were going to start your own company. So it feels like leadership was an eventuality, right? Do you still get to code a good bit? What's it been like being a dev and now being a dev manager? Yeah, it's hard, I'd say. I think originally and even to this day, I have had a lot of learning to do when it comes to like moving away from an independent contributor or an IC to someone in a pseudo management position, particularly when it comes to accepting that like the success of a project isn't reliant on you building it. It's reliant on the team that is able to build it. There's this weird mental shift that kind of has to happen where it's like your success is in the outcome but not in the act of building anymore and it's in this weird pendulum that i've been going through lately on one end of the pendulum there's heavy management side of making sure people are in the right seats and working on what's important and impactful and on the other side of the pendulum there's this intense ic work which is kind of where i used to operate again and a lot of my role has been swinging back and forth on this pendulum of making sure that people are happy and turned on and working on what they want to be working on on the management side and then moving back into the IC side on the other side of that pendulum of diving deep into random ideas that I've had just to hack on stuff and see if it's somewhere that we could go in a technical direction. So I would say it's a matter of just like finding that balance on the pendulum for me lately of intense IC coding work and more management work. Yeah, I imagine, like you said, there's friction there because... Your ideas, as you get older, you get context, you become more of a veteran in the space. Your ideas are maybe the most valuable thing about you. And you are maybe most valuable to Zora in this leadership role, leading a bunch of people who can do a lot more that way. But at the same time, you're a dev at heart, right? You're just that kid from the software club who likes to hack on stuff. And so I bet there's some push and pull there. Yeah, definitely. I do think that that mental shift of just accepting that it's about putting the team first and making sure that the team is able to build the coolest things has led to some of the, the best projects out of Zora. Some of the things that I'm most proud of, like our API and Zoratopia and our magazine, like all of these things are projects that I had really no part in other than just like seeing the team. And those things have led to incredible, incredible products that I think are some of the best parts of Zora. And just accepting that it's not you who has to build them anymore leads to all sorts of new and great ideas. Yeah. I had one more question about this before moving on to now, because I still want to talk about all that. I heard a quote from you that basically said that if you had the choice between cleaner code and more gas optimized code, go with cleaner code. 
Are there maybe any other values that if I asked some of the people directly under you, they would describe you as maybe what are your core values when it comes to the work you do? Wow, I would like that question answered too. <laughs> I'm not sure, actually. Going back to the, the cleaner code and the more gas optimized code, I don't want to be like misunderstood. I guess there is a huge, huge benefit in being gas efficient. And that's part of the reason our creator toolkit does so well is because it's just hilariously cheap to create in mint editions. I just think that like focusing solely on gas has like this huge cost trade-off with legibility and safety. It's much safer knowing that everyone can read your code and understand if something might go wrong rather than just read it as this black box of assembly magic that only a few people can read. I would say that's one of the values that I appreciate the most is just legibility and the understanding that the more eyes you can get on something, the safer it would end up being rather than making it something that only a few people can understand. Definitely. So let's move on to nouns. I've heard various stories from Jacob and others, but I'd like to hear from you. When was the first time you heard about nouns? I mean, I'm sure it's during the summer of building it, but talk to me about when you first found out that they were forking the auction house and for everyone listening, I know you touched on it earlier. Can you just explain like I'm five to the audience what the Zora auction house is, why nouns would want to fork that and your first intro and experience with nouns during that summer that they were building it? Sure. So starting with what an auction house is, the auction house that we built was essentially a contract that allows any NFT to be auctioned off. And anytime a bid is placed on an NFT auction, if that bid is placed in the last few minutes, that auction timer is restarted. So if you have a 24 hour auction on some NFT and there's 15 minutes remaining, every new bid will increase that timer back to the 15 minute mark again. So you could, in theory, have these auctions that last forever until someone is completely priced out and not able to participate in the auction anymore. It was started by someone named Coldies, I think originally for Super Rare, and we just wanted to make a generic and public version of that for everyone. And then moving on to like when I'd heard about the nouns version of this, I remember I was working out of Jacob's place last summer, and we were working, I think at the time, on this big auction for the original Doge NFT. We were building a website to support that auction. And I remember Jacob just asking, oh, did someone just fork our auction house? And we looked at the code and I was like, oh, yeah, that's using a lot of our code. And we were like, OK, cool, whatever. And just kept digging back into the Doge auction that we were working on. And it's funny, I didn't poke up my head long enough to really think about how novel the nouns really was. Zora has like been forked about 100 times at this point. And I think it's amazing every time it happens because we get these really cool iterations on these ideas where you get all sorts of new, really interesting evolutions that happen when people build off of your code. And I mean, even all of Zora's code has come from somewhere. It's always been inspired by something else. Like there's no original NFT contract, just like there's no original artwork. When I originally seen nouns, I was like, oh, cool. It's a daily auction. I didn't even think about the DAO piece. I just thought it was interesting that they were auctioning off an entire collection day by day. But as the nouns started to spread, we started thinking about it a little bit more and realized just how novel that idea really was. The idea of effectively an organically growing community where one new member can be added every single day, controlling this very large treasury, where instead of all of the money from an NFT drop going to the original creator who's expected to maintain and build that community and build a huge ecosystem, it's all in the power of the DAO itself to steal something that Jacob continuously says, rather than devs do something as the question mark for why an NFT collection isn't going up. It's much more of like DAO do something where it's, it's on the members of that NFT community to actually proliferate and expand the ecosystem of the NFT collection itself. And that really started to break all of our heads a little bit as we started to think about the secondary effects of what nouns could be. Did you have a hand in building the auction house back then? Yeah, I think I might have been the only protocol engineer back then. I don't want to get that wrong, but 
a very small protocol team at Sora. That was an original contract, yeah, back then. Yeah, I was just curious. I haven't heard much. Everyone says they forked the Zora auction house, but I haven't ever really learned the history of all that. Yeah, I will say, like anyone who's listening to this, please continue to fork Zora's code. It's all open source and MIT licensed for a reason. All of these evolutions are very, very exciting. I think people like unintentionally or intentionally try to defend their code when they don't really have to. Because really, forking code, just like forking nouns, it expands the value of the original. And really, the more ideas we get or the more evolutions of an original idea we get, the cooler concepts start to come out at the other end. Yeah, there's another quote by you. I think you were quoted by Jacob. Anyone can come, take the pieces they like from it, nouns, build off of it, and it expands the meme. This very open idea behind nouns, its art, and the project. I'm curious if you have, just from being around nouns this whole time, if you have any favorite parts of the ecosystem. From the nouns experiment, what have you found novel or fun or interesting that's come out of it? I think one of the coolest ideas that I've been seeing come out of it is just the ability for creators to get funding for ideas without having to basically go through charity. The ability for nouns to be effectively a philanthropist of the arts or a philanthropist of just general ideas that people have is incredible. Because a lot of these ideas, the nouns community doesn't really expect a return on their investment. They just want to fund these ideas to see them be experimented with to expand the meme of the nouns. That concept is really cool. Even things like sending nouns to space or putting the big mural up in Soho in New York. All of these ideas are just funny, cool ideas that are exciting to see get funding and actually be created in the physical world. Yeah, I agree. I'm curious if there's anything that kind of has stuck in the back of your head of like, why haven't we seen this built off nouns? Does anything come to mind? Not necessarily. I would bet that within the next year or two, we will see multiple million dollar projects that are just started via DAO proposals rather than through other means of getting ideas. There's just this new idea. The nouns community can really help make or break your idea by on-chain signaling that they're, they're for or against it. It's really powerful. It's effectively a cosign from the nouns DAO. So I imagine we'll see all sorts of cool secondary effects from the power of a nouns cosign in the future. Yeah, I mean, I work on Prop House and I love how that project has helped get usually small amounts of capital to a ton of people. But I'm also really curious, we've had maybe a couple over million dollar proposals, but I'm waiting for like the super ambitious $5 million prop to pass or just something completely on a different scale, something crazy ambitious. I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, exactly. And you have to assume that's coming soon, just with the trajectory of nouns lately. And I can't wait to see what that idea is. And it's going to be so powerful, like how quickly that proposal is going to be vetted and scrutinized pretty harshly. However, when it's all said and done, it's going to be the easiest way anyone's ever gotten $5 million. Mm -hmm, exactly. <laughs> the easiest and almost hilariously meme -y way to get money. Like It's all coming from the power of these noggles and these little glasses. It's just hilarious to see what kind of capital can be put towards ideas like that. So talking about putting ideas to work, the last thing I wanted to touch on today was the Nouns Builder. Can you give us some context about what it is, where it's at? And first, I'm really curious about the bullishness that Zora, the company, has put into this project. Can you speak to all that? Yeah, definitely. So Nouns Builder is a generalization of the original nouns. And when I say generalization, I mean, we have learned and started to understand the incredibly novel idea that is nouns and the collaboration models that are introduced by nouns. And we think that it might work in more than one case. So there should probably be more nouns DAO-like entities in the world just because of the way 
that anyone is able to organize around a meme. And that meme could be art, some idea, some fixed goal, anything. The ability for groups to be able to organize around an idea like that and grow via these fixed schedules is incredible. And we wanted to like play with the idea of generalizing that and building effectively a factory that allows anyone to create a DAO in the same style of Nouns DAO. And when I say same style, I don't mean same artwork style, but I mean same mechanism design underneath the hood. We really, really think that's kind of the future of how communities are able to organize around ideas in the future. You get this community buy-in from day one. Anyone is able to participate right away by just participating in the auctions. There's no airdrops or like public market launches that need to happen. You just have an open auction from day one. You also have a large ecosystem of open proposals, which means that every DAO is able to support every other DAO. In the same way that we have nouns and little nouns supporting each other, where little nouns is buying nouns from the original nouns DAO, we have this huge harmonious cycle of teams that are able to support each other. And you end up with less competition between DAOs and more collaborations between DAOs. That potential model gets very, very exciting. So what we're trying to do with Nouns Builder to kind of bring it back to more of a single sentence is we, we want to make a tool that allows anyone to build a noun style DAO. That's what we're hoping to accomplish with the launch of this project. Totally. And Nouns has attracted a ton of developers, right? There's a lot of smart people behind Nouns. The code base, the contracts are great, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's attracted a lot of dev talent throughout the year. But I specifically find this interesting when it comes to the artist point of view. Again, assuming the artist does not have technical chops or isn't a dev as well, etc. Can you paint the picture of how simple this would be for an artist with their assets, what it looks like, and how quickly an artist could get up and running with something like this? Because people talk about forking nouns and they always want help. And there's a ton of questions in the Discord about how to set it up. And there's a lot there. And you guys are really taking all that heavy lift just out. So how easy is this going to be for artists to quote-unquote fork nouns? Yeah, I would say hilariously easy. It's funny that there's this almost annoying technological wall where people need to have some base level of understanding of how the code works to fork and create something that's open source and MIT licensed or completely CC0. It seems unnecessary that you have to go through these technical barriers to use a product like that. So with Nouns Builder, it's as simple as having an Ethereum wallet and having some artwork that you want to see on-chain. So... When you go through, you create your nouns DAO, you just simply enter the name, the description, the rate of auctions that you'd like to see, and then just a directory of the artwork you want to see. And that includes the different layers of artwork. So you can have some level of generative art applied or just one piece of art if you want them all to have the same image. And you just click through and create your DAO. It takes literally five minutes. We've been doing it for fun through testing for the last few months now. And it's hilarious and very addicting just to play with these different generative models. Yeah, was there anything as you were building this out dev-wise that you guys either did different, improved upon, or is there anything novel introduced? I'm curious. I think the most novel idea of the Nouns Builder that we're really excited for is we actually think that the Nouns protocol that we've kind of developed, and we're calling it the Nouns protocol to nod to the original Nouns and also to notify like it is the general version of Nouns. We want that protocol to be governed by another Nouns DAO. So with the launch of the Nouns Protocol is also the launch of a builder DAO that governs the entire protocol. So whenever it comes to things like upgrades or new feature sets on the Nouns protocol, it will actually be going through a proposal just like Nouns goes through proposals. So anytime the community has ideas for things that they would like to see as an upgrade to the project, they can do through a proposal just like proposals go through nouns. Just as a basically proving point that we think the nouns model can be repetitive and can be used in all sorts of different ecosystems or atmospheres whether that be governing a protocol, governing a large treasury like Nouns does, 
fixating around a goal or an idea, the core concept or the core mechanism behind nouns can be applied anywhere. And who's in the BuilderDAO? The BuilderDAO is anyone who wants to participate in the daily auctions, just like who's in nouns. Anyone is able to be a member of the BuilderDAO by joining the DAO and acquiring one of those NFTs. Nice. And with this upcoming release, also, how soon is it releasing? (laughs) I will say very soon. I don't know how long it takes to edit these podcasts, but maybe before this podcast. So, Oh, wow. Okay, this will be out next week. So, (laughs) Well, (laughs) Well, go check out Nouns Builder today. (laughs) But there's going to be adoption, right? People are very excited about this already. One of the most talked about projects out there. But what does true success for this look like in your opinion, right? Is it a certain number of auctions created or how are you thinking about the success of all this work you guys have put into this? I think one of the biggest signifiers for success for us, and when I say us, I mean builder, is the builder out operating within this protocol, is the number of successfully funded DAOs we see in the ecosystem outside of the announced DAO. There's likely going to be a world where there's For every sort of genre of idea space, there will be a Nounsdao operating within that idea space. I really can't wait to see what level of collaboration or new ideas get formed inside of these different idea genres. If there was a single metric, it would be the number of users actively participating in DAOs by bidding on auctions. That's something that I think will be very, very interesting to see in the future. Yeah, I'm also curious about not just the number, I, I think it's probably going to explode because I've seen it personally and it's really easy to work through it. But I'm curious about what's going to be the most, I don't know if significant, but just the biggest project to come out of the Nouns Builder, the project with the biggest impact that uses the UI. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I'm hesitant to make a prediction there. All I would say is I hope it's not the builder itself. I really want to see there be some project created via the protocol that we do not expect taking off. Yeah, I'm hoping the Nouns Builder is truly like the springboard that launches something much bigger, right? Exactly. In the same way that for Web2, Kickstarter was a huge springboard for new ideas. We kind of hope that the Builder is a springboard for new ideas in the Web3 space. Yeah, that's a great idea because, I mean, on Kickstarter, I feel like there have been major motion pictures who have been funded four or five million dollars off of Kickstarter. I don't think that was the original intent, right? It is usually for like smaller amounts. So, yeah, I'm interested in kind of larger scale, higher impact projects that use Nouns Builder to springboard off of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and wondering like when those ideas will really start to take off. I imagine we'll have a lot of fun artistic DAOs before we have something on a huge, huge scale of millions of dollars and thousands of users. But I'm excited to see how quickly that happens. Yeah, I'm very excited as well. And for those listening, more than likely, it will be out today. So excited to see everything that comes out of it. Tyson, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. What do you want people to know? Where do you want to direct people? What should they check out besides Noun Builder? And where can they find you? Thank you for having me. You specifically said other than Nouns Builder, but I'm still going to say nouns.build. It's a great URL. People should go look at it. Zora on Twitter is where we're most active. And then for myself personally, just at TBTSTL, the very confusing and consonant filled username for myself on online spaces. All right. Well, looking forward to it. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. Awesome. Thanks again. All right. Thanks. See you.